about because I think it's good to get them out and, and to talk about them. And, and uh, uh, in a sense, we, we interact with these things so that we understand them better. So first of all, uh, let's talk about a generalized overview of the early church. Uh, there in Roman numeral one. Uh, much of the writings that we have from the early church fathers, and incidentally, I'm not going to go into them in great detail tonight. I'm going to talk more about concepts than I am about facts and dates and such. But much of the writings of the early church um, from the early fathers was really a response to either heresy or a response to political persecution. So they, they were defending something. I, I was listening to, to a lecture from somebody um, at, at, it wasn't at Knox, it was another seminary. I've got it on my iPad, and when I walk the dog, I listen to this guy. And, and he said, if, if you really want to study a thinker, and he was talking about philosophy in this case, but if you really want to study a thinker, the, the, the one way to study them is to find out who their opponents were. Because ultimately what you're doing is you construct an argument or a response to your opponents. Now, isn't, in some respects, isn't that what the gospel is? The reclaiming of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And, and so uh, that's kind of the direction we're going to go in, but that was the direction that many of these early church fathers went in. They, they, their writings was a response to criticisms and heresies and, and that sort of thing. And in that, it's important, and I, I say this, and I get myself in a whole lot of trouble, and, and, and by the way... Um, we may not completely see eye to eye on everything that I may share tonight, and that's okay. Really, that's okay, and, and I'm not here to stir up anything. Um, I, I, I'm a little bit on the outer orbit, if you will, of Calvary Chapel. Um, I've got some different ideas on, on a, a few things. Doesn't mean I'm right. Doesn't mean I'm wrong, but anyway. But, but nonetheless, uh, we want to hold these things in context of the fact that we are family. And this is a family discussion that we're going to have tonight. And it's important in that regard to understand that all of us, those then, those of us now, we're really products of our environment, aren't we? I grew up in a dispensational church. Does anybody, does everybody or how many know what a dispensational church is? Uh, basically, you're in one for the most part, all right? Similar, right? Is that a fair one? Okay. Uh, believes in a pre-trib rapture, that sort of thing. Um, that's all I knew for the first many, many years of, of, of my life. I went away to a Baptist college, and, and then to come to find out that there were other views on end times. And it was like, oh, you're kidding me. They're, they're, you don't believe in a rapture, or you don't believe in a tribulation, or these type of things. And, and the thing is, is I was a product of my environment. I have a man in my church, love him to death, but he's never really read much outside of his own tradition. And because of that, when, when I, I start expanding on different things, he, he thinks I'm in left field. And I'm, I'm giving him very orthodox Christian thought. But he's a product of his environment. And so the fact is that our environment is going to affect our understanding and it's going to affect our analysis. What do we mean by analysis? how we process the information that we receive. You know, how do you process the messages that you hear here uh, Sunday morning? That's analysis. How do, we, how do we deal with these things? We, again, we're products of our environment. Now, many of these church fathers may or may not have 
had access to the full canon of Scripture. They might not have had the full 27, 27? yeah, 27, had to check, 27 books of the New Testament uh, at their disposal because the, the canon, and what I mean by the canon is, is, is the agreed upon uh, uh, series or collection of Scripture. The canon wasn't completely uh, um, approved or codified until about 397 A.D. in the Council of Carthage. So, and Jesus died around when? Around 33 A.D. And the last book of the New Testament was written probably about 90 to 96 A.D. If you say 60, that takes you into a completely different realm, actually. I'll explain, well... Because, okay, since I opened the door, I'll go there. Because the, the, those who believe in an early date for the book of Revelation say that it was fulfilled in 70 AD. And so the dates are when these books were written is important. And I, don't, I believe that I'm a late, uh, uh, I believe in the late 90s, uh, uh, mid 90s as far as the book of Revelation. So we're talking 300 years later that they finally agreed upon a certain set of books to be inspired scripture. So uh, that left a lot to be imagined, didn't it? And there were some books out there that didn't make the final cut. And uh, according to some, there were some books out there that didn't make the final cut that should. Now, I think that God preserved his word. I think what we have is exactly what God intended for us to have. Uh, I don't think it's a matter of man um, authorizing the canon. I think it's a matter of man discovering the canon. There's a big difference there, isn't there? But I, I'll never forget, I was in Salt Lake City. Uh, I was getting baptized for some dead relatives. No, uh, just kidding. But um, but I, I was there with, uh, I, w- I was at an outreach, actually, in, um, it's a huge Carson City in, in uh, Salt Lake City. It's probably about the size of this town. Uh, definitely it's bigger than Sisters. But uh, I was there after an outreach, and I was there with my former pastor, and we were taught, and the guy was a Catholic, and he was arguing about the, the canon and all this, and, and my pastor said to him, the canon was discovered. It wasn't authorized. That's an important point when you talk to Roman Catholics, because they will tell you that the Bible is generated by the church, and that's why they correlate tradition with scripture on equal terms. Does that make sense? Everybody caught that? Okay, uh, it's not true. I don't believe the the canon was discovered, it wasn't authorized. I don't know why I went there. Uh, but uh, then the next point is that, that the church fathers did not always agree with each other. Now, does that sound like today? <laughs> it sure sounds like today. Church fathers did not always agree with each other. There was a big distinction that we're, we're not going to really get into this tonight. But there was a big distinction. I'll mention it and get off of it between the Eastern Church, and the Western Church. The Eastern Church, through a guy named Origen, who was extremely, with a capital E, extremely uh, influenced by Greek philosophy. And in the West, there was a guy named Tertullian, who was actually from North Africa, who um, was also a lawyer, and so he thought things very methodically, very left and right, black and white. He, he thought really like the Jews did because he was trained in the law. But he was, he was one of the, the foundational writers 
for the Western church. Also, in the West, they spoke what language? Starts with an L. There you go. They spoke Latin. And in the, in the East, the Greek church, they spoke Greek. And as the centuries went on, people who were very commonly bilingual or trilingual uh, at the time of Jesus, they started gravitating toward one language. So the writings of the Greeks were isolated to those who spoke Greek. The writings of the Latins were isolated to those who spoke Latin. And they had two different thoughts. Again, we are products of our environment. So they started going in two different directions. Do you see what became known as the Great Schism? Where the Western Church, uh, later known as the Roman Catholic Church, but we're talking prior to that, but the Western Church kind of split off, and the Eastern Church, they claim the Western Church split off, but again, it depends on who you read, right? But they didn't always agree with each other. So if you go and you read the early fathers, if you find conflicting ideas, expect it. Uh, even within the realm of Calvary Chapel, there, we don't always agree with each other, do we? In my own church, we don't always agree with each other, do we, Greg? And I, I love to tell them this, and I, I probably shouldn't, but I, I tell them that you know, I, if, if you want to believe what you want to believe, that's fine, and I'm okay with you being wrong if you disagree with me. <laughs> now, you laugh. So I, some of them give me some pretty harsh looks. But, um, and, and so I guess what, what I'm part, trying to say here, guys, is that we need to hold on to our doctrine Tenaciously, but humbly. But humbly. I don't know. I, I doubt Rory has ever taught you anything that was wrong. You know, I might have taught some things that were wrong along the way, but did I purposely teach something wrong? Did I maliciously teach something wrong? No. And so we do the best that we can with what we got and what, what God has given us. And so they, they didn't always agree. Um, where I struggled with, and, and, and can I confess something to you? I shouldn't say this in front of Greg, but Greg, you're my friend. And so after, after reading several of the church fathers, I thought, boy, I should become an Orthodox Christian. Now, I thought to myself, I better, I better back that up a little <laughs> bit, huh? And Roy's thinking to himself, I asked this guy to come and speak. Why? And, and I had to, to really take a breath and really think through what it is that the Bible says and what it is that these guys were saying about what the Bible said. What did I, what did I just say there? I forced myself to be what? Starts with a B, a good Berean. And, and to go back and to search the scriptures to see if what I have read or what you have heard is true. The final court of arbitration is the word of God, is it not? The problem with that is that sometimes we interpret it differently, don't we? Again, there are those who interpret it one way, and then those, those who interpret it the way that I see it, so hence it must be what? The right way. But of course, we all feel that way, don't we? That's why you have to hold it in humility. See how this keeps spinning back around in itself? So... Uh, their church, the way they describe church uh, was, was really, there were some differences of, with the way that we do church now. 
There's a book called the Didache. It's in your notes. Um, the Didache possibly predates the book of Revelation. It was possibly written around 70 A.D. or in the 70s A.D. And it, it's a manual for how to do church. Now, should we all go read the Didache and next Sunday morning you're going to be doing things a little bit differently around here because of what you've read in the Didache? Or is our worship expression cultural and we have some latitude to be able to do that? Now, follow me on this one. This is getting application already here, hopefully, all right? I grew up in a church, and I, I think, Greg, you did too, where every Sunday morning, some of you in here probably, if you've been in church most of your life, I wore a white shirt, I wore a black tie, I wore a suit, I wore, I hate this, I'm almost, I had a hard time saying the word, S-L-A-C-K-S. I wore slacks. I, you know what wingtips are? I wore wingtips. And that was how you did church. And my dad, who was not a Christian up until probably about a few hours before he died, was angrier at me every Sunday than the theological place of eternal punishment, if you will, because when I got older, I started wearing Levi's to church. And then I started going to this church that met in a, my goodness, a circus tent. And their hair was longer than mine. Uh, well, not now, but I mean, even then, their hair was longer than mine. And, and cultural expressions will change. But how we interact in our worship and what flows from our hearts in worship should never change. That's eternal, if you will. And, and, and we have been made among all things to be worshipers of God. Amen? And, and what an incredible calling just to gather as we do week after week, to lift up the name of Jesus, to exalt him, to worship him, to praise him, to love him, to, to make his name known, first and foremost, in our own hearts. Because if you're really convinced, first and foremost, in your own hearts, it's going to flow. It's like the living water that flows out of your innermost being. Boy, I don't know how we're going to get through all this, but anyway, we'll, we'll do it. Yeah, exactly. Here's where I get controversial. Most of the early fathers were premillennial. Almost all of them were not pre-tribulational. All right, they weren't. There's some reasons for that. One of the reasons for that is because uh, very quickly, the church started to experience some very intense persecution. And they were watching their brothers and sisters. Now look around, look around at each other, just for a second, just look around, what a lovely group of people, right? Imagine some of us getting hauled off and, and being burned at the stake right now, tonight, or having our heads cut off, or whatever else that they did to, to put people to death, or being thrown to the lions. And, and to, you know, I think sometimes we are very removed from that, but when it becomes your everyday reality, it's going to affect your theology, isn't it? 
because they were like the church of Smyrna, Revelation chapter 2, the call to the overcomer. And that was their heart. That was their focus. And so naturally, what went on around them, and remember, they didn't have all the 27 books at their disposal. Talking about the New Testament. And so they had to construct some of their reality based on their own experience. So I have a quote from you from Hippolytus, and um, I'll let you look that over uh, later on. Uh, three things I want to get into tonight. That was an old introduction. It took a while, but that was an introduction. We doing okay? Okay. I want, remember what I said, I want to look at the opponents of the church. And there were three areas that the church experienced opposition. They experienced it politically, they experienced it culturally, and they experienced it theologically. Now, does that sound like today? Boy, I, I, politically, maybe not so much, or at least maybe not here in Prineville. I, don't, I mean, what, what was that? Go ahead. Anybody can speak here. It's all right. In some respects, yes, and in some respects, it could get worse. Now, I'm, I, I'm not much of a doomsayer, if you will, and I'm not saying you are, and if you are, God bless you anyway, right? I'm, you know, but that's always a possibility, isn't it? Jesus said if they persecuted me, they would persecute whom? You. He's talking to the body. He's talking to us. So political opposition, cultural opposition. Boy, do we not have cultural opposition today? And theological opposition. We'll get to it, but boy, I could run the gamut on theological opposition. But first, talk about political challenges. Roman numeral two. The, um, the early church first experienced persecution from what group of people? It's in your notes, but you probably know already. The Jews. Well, who put Jesus to death? Really, the Jews did. And, and uh, I've read a, a really good book who really, uh, he, the author, his name is John R.W. Studd. He's called The Cross of Christ. I recommend it highly. Um, and he talked about how the Jews had Pilate over a barrel. And because they had leverage on him politically, they manipulated him to putting Jesus to death. So they put to death Jesus. Who else did they persecute and put to death? Stephen. Acts, what, 7? Stephen. And then, of course, Paul became one of the chief persecutors of the church until he was apprehended on the Damascus Road. And then Paul, in his missionary journeys, had who following him around all the time? You remember the word that they, the name that they gave him? It starts with a J. Judaizers. Judaizers. The Judaizers follow him around, right? And, and it, what they would do is they would go around and they would unwind everything that Paul was doing when he went and established churches. And, and so they were really the first persecutors of the church. Now, they had a well-defined belief system. I put in parentheses. I don't know if I put it in your notes. I'm working off of slightly different notes than yours. The law. A well-defined system of what you can't do and what you can't do. Does that speak to us today? Do we encounter that today? We were talking about this a little bit on the way over here, weren't we, Greg? Greg. 
Do you have people that come along and tell you what you can or you can't do because you're a Christian? Right? How do you handle that? Do you say you're right and you walk away and avoid the argument? When people challenge you on what you do or what you don't do because you're a Christian, how do you handle that? Anybody? Scripture. Final court of arbitration, right? And, and, and yes, you can show them what, what the scripture says. And, uh, well, you, you know I can be contentious, right? And, and we've been there in meetings where it's been about scripture and, and my interpretation or somebody else's. And, and sometimes you just have to agree what? To disagree. But, yeah, you could use scripture. Why? Because a lot of times they will accuse you, especially non-believers. They have a very incomplete view of the Bible, don't they? They have very incomplete knowledge about the Bible. A lot of them will tell you stuff that, well, doesn't the Bible say, uh, what's one of those silly phrases? Um, godliness is next to, cleanliness is next to godliness, or some of those other silly sayings that, that they're good idioms, but they're not the inspired word of God. And, and, and so, guys, it's important that you understand your liberty, but you might be... Uh, in a place from time to time that you have to give an answer to anyone for the hope that lies within you. So again, I like that answer, Rory, Yeah, the, the Bible. And so uh, I know you put a premium on the Bible. Um, I think we do, don't we, Greg? You know, we teach the Bible at Calvary Chapel. And, and so that we hide these words in our heart that we might not sin against thee. It's so important that we do that. Um, then the Jews, as I mentioned it earlier, they didn't have the power to put someone to death, so they were persuading others to do so. Um, that was a nice politically way, uh, correct way of saying they're manipulators is what I'm really getting at there. Now, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm part Jewish myself, right? Golden, all right? But anyway, but... Uh, what I'm talking about is the dichotomy between the natural man and the godly man, all right? It doesn't matter what your ancestor is. Jesus told Nicodemus what? John chapter 3, you must be born again, right? And that's the dichotomy of what we want to look at. I don't care of what your ancestry is or isn't. Um, so they, 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 they didn't have the power to put people to death, but they, they knew how to leverage the system. Now, Judaism and Christianity, they were both monotheistic. What is monotheism? One God, all right? And I noticed I said it's organized. What do I mean by that? Versus polytheism. Polytheism is what? Many gods, which is unorganized. What do I mean by that? I like that. That's good. Anyways, I like that. That's good. <laughs> Polytheism. More than one God. Many gods. You can turn anything into a deity. You realize that? Does anybody... Now, I don't... I, I used to go, all right? But, um, so I'm not putting them down. Does anybody have any... You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to because it's anonymous. Does anybody have any experience with any 12-step programs? Okay, I said you didn't have to. Anyway, um, what do they tell you? You pick a God of what? Your own choosing. 
Now, that is a subtle form of polytheism. I, I heard a story. I didn't know this guy. I would have loved to have met him, at least for 10 minutes. But I heard a story that there was a guy that he picked. I'm going to date myself. Back in the, what was it? 80s, okay. Um, Budman. Remember any older guys? You remember Budman? He was dressed up like Superman, but he had a bee on his chest. That was his higher power. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, okay. All right. I, I got a Budman brother with you, Paul. That was his higher powers. Well, guess what he ended up doing? He went back out and started drinking again. And, and so, uh, unorganized polytheism, and yet, uh, because anything can be turned into a deity. And, and, and the myths that the Greeks had, they're really just a projection of their own imagination. The, the, the philosophical Greeks did not believe in the, in the, in the mystic gods. They didn't, Plato didn't, and Socrates did not believe in all these gods that the Greeks worshipped. You know what they thought about them? They thought they were put in place for the common man so that they might keep the common man under control. In other words, that if you were truly intellectual, you wouldn't believe in religion. I've, I've come across people like that. I've got a, well, I'm being recorded, but I'll say it anyway. I have a sister like that who can't believe that I would actually believe in a God. And, you know, how stupid I must be. And how do we respond to that? How do I respond to that? I'll answer that. How's that? You cannot argue with the testimony that Jesus Christ has done in my own heart. Can't argue with it. You might be able to argue with this. Now, granted, you can't argue with this very well. right? And anybody who's well-equipped can defend the word. I'll tell you where I get rabbit trail, just one, well, maybe. Where I, where I get really concerned is when the average Jehovah Witness can turn the average born-again Christian into a pretzel in about 10 minutes or less. I love it when they come to my door. Uh, you know, and last time they started talking about philosophy. And I was like, dang, okay, this is wonderful. They started talking about philosophy, and so I, I took off on it. And I started talking about the reason and how the philosophers saw reason as the ultimate uh, um, um, pursuit. What's the word reason in the Greek, by the way? Logos. Have you heard that word before? In the beginning was the logos. John 1. And so what I told them is, yes, they, they were pursuing the Logos, but because of human reason, they could only understand so much. What did they need? They needed revelation from the Holy Spirit. And I took, they didn't know what to do with me, because I'm out, I'm out this, time, this is a Saturday morning, I'm out splitting wood, I look like I'm out splitting wood, and, and they wanted to try to talk up here with me, and so I just took it up a level. And, and I... I I laugh too, okay? So I'm not, I don't want to make fun of you for laughing, but you know what? It isn't who wins the argument because it's about God winning the heart. It's always about God winning the heart. And, and so anyway, I need to, need to move on here. Um, the Jewish, well, Here's another, here's another point to really think about for a second. The Jewish people, they segregated themselves. Now, granted, that's why they have been able to survive so many years 
without a homeland. They segregated themselves. They, they, they weren't a part of the majority, they, 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 but they did it to the exclusion of others. The idea of multiculturalism, in other words, many different cultures coming together, has a tendency to breed, particularly in the ancient world, had a tendency to breed uh, uh, polytheism because all these people come together with their gods. Is that any different than today? Not really, because all these people, they may not be worshiping, worshiping Hermes or Apollo or, or, or those false gods, but they come together with all their different what? Ideology. All their different thoughts about life. See, we're all really philosophers. We just don't know it. Really, we all really are philosophers. We, just, we have some sense of a code by which we live and make sense of the world. And, and so, so uh, separatism can be very socially disruptive. You ever thought about that? I've been around, gosh, I, I, yeah, I'm going to use this as an example. If they hear it, they hear it. Um, people who homeschool to the place where they will not allow their children to intermingle with anybody else other than their own little homeschool world. And on the contrast to that, I had this guy, he was this, this crazy guy in my church, his name is Bobby. Um, Bobby's a missionary now in, in Israel. And uh, he saw the opportunity of spreading the gospel by sending his kids into the public school. And they were, as a matter of fact, his kids used to get in trouble because they would witness at, at school. And, and whatever you do, we did both with our kids, all right? So I'm not saying don't be a, if you want to be a homeschooler, God bless you, be a homeschooler. If you want to send your kids to public school, God bless you, send your kids to public school. But, but as the Lord leads us, and, and as the Lord leads these things on our conscience, because the reality is, though, if we are so separate from the world, and Paul speaks about this in what 1 Corinthians 5, I believe, that you're not to be a part of those who are, are walking in sin and naming the name of Christ, but he's, but he's saying, I never told you not to separate yourself from the world. You know, one of the, well, I, I used to, I hated it and I loved it. I used to be a construction worker. And break time was always really interesting because everybody but me would disappear from our little spot and uh, that we were having a break at or lunchtime. Everybody would disappear and then they would come back and their eyes would be really red. I never really understood what was going on. Of course I understood what was going on, you know. And here I'm the only one who's not getting high on the job. But to be with those guys day in and day out and try to be faithful to that which God had called me to do. Now, did I enjoy that? No. Because I have a new name for weed. It's called smart pills. Right? Because when people take smoke weed, it's like taking a smart pill. People get really smart when they smoke. You ever notice that? They get really stupid is what I'm trying to say. All right? Separatism, though. I, I decided I, I didn't want to withdraw myself. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. Real quick, first scripture this, uh, that we're really going to look at this, more, uh, this evening. 1 Corinthians 9, 22. Anybody want to read it if you're there? I love that verse. To the weak I became as weak. 
that I might win the weak. I became all things. All things. Now, doesn't mean you have to be a pot smoker to win the pot smokers, right? All right? That's not what it means. But to be with people. You know, Jesus said it so clearly in Matthew when he talked about, you don't take a light, a lamp and light it and then put a basket over it, do you? But you're to let that light shine so that they may see your good works and do what? Anybody know? Glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Actually, I talked about that. I don't know if you listened yet, but I talked about that quite a bit on Sunday. Separatism can be very socially destructive. What's even worse is when they go off to the synagogue or the church, 20th century, 21st century, i got to catch up, and they say, well, not only is this good for me, but this message is good for you too. And yet, we're not invested in their lives. There's no heart-to-heart connection going there. Anyway. I'm going to skip ahead. Now, let's go to E. I think it's E on yours too. The church has to be sensitive not to compromise. Because I'm talking about being with people, aren't I? All right? The Jews separated themselves. I'm making a contrast here. The church had to be sensitive not uh, not to compromise or conform to the existing culture in order to spread the message of the gospel. But you will encounter people with vast cultural differences. I gave an example here. The average person today doesn't read books, do they? Now, you want to invite people to a, a Bible study and they don't even read? Does that seem a little antithetical to the culture? Anybody, how would, why would you stress that that's important? Because they would rather watch a YouTube, right? Or some kind of video. Conviction? <laughs> you know, I, I'm not saying it's wrong. No, it's yeah. I do at times, and, or I just, I laugh my head off. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I do that too. Or it's like, I can't believe you just said that. But what I'm saying, we have a culture that's geared more towards sitting in front of their computer than it is to open a book. And you mean, you want me, you guys do Acts 242 ministry, right? I saw that on your, you do home studies here. You you want me to go to someone's house where I, I don't even know them and sit down and read a book where I don't even know where Matthew is? How do you approach people like that? Have you ever thought about how to approach people like that? Because they don't think Christian like we do. And if they do not have the Holy Spirit inside of them to guide them, how in the world are we ever going to expect them to get it? We have to present it to them in such a way that it makes sense to them. Intellectually and also emotionally. That makes sense. All right? Again, I'm all about apologetics, and I'm all about wanting to see people get saved. Let's talk about Roman persecution. We've got about, what, 10 minutes? Roman persecution. A.D. 49. The Jews are kicked out of Rome. What I find interesting is that from 
most documents, we find that they are kicked out of Rome because they're arguing about who the Messiah is. In AD 49, the Romans did not consider Christians a separate group. They considered them a subgroup of Judaism. And the Jews, by the way, were afforded special privileges. I think that's God's province, by the way. But they were afforded special privileges that other groups were not. Other groups had to worship the Caesars. The Jews did not have to worship the Caesars. And therefore, initially, the Christians did not have to worship the Caesars because the Roman government thought they were Jews. Now, what did it mean to worship Caesar? Once a year, you come in, you grab a pinch of incense, you throw it in the fire, you say, Jesus, or excuse me, you say, Caesar is Lord, and then you go about your way. But the early fathers, the early church had such integrity that they were unwilling to do that because what happened in the persecution by the Romans is that more and more Gentiles got saved. Therefore, the Roman government finally woke up to the fact that maybe these guys aren't Jews after all. Again, initially they saw them as Jews. They kicked them out of Rome. Um, We see that given to us in, in the book of Acts where it talks about Aquila and Priscilla how they had been, been booted out of Rome uh, because they thought they were Jews. Uh, and Claudius was the one who did this. He did not make distinction between Christians and Jews. Uh, then eventually here comes this guy named Nero. Nero, whom the church nicknamed the beast. Now, is that a reference to Revelation? No, Why? Thank you. wasn't written yet. All right, we're thinking. I like it. Nero comes around around 64 AD. And he starts this great fire. Uh, at least he is blamed for having started a great fire in Rome. Now, he has some serious political issues. And he was not very popular even in Rome. Um, and so he blames the Christians for um, burning most of Rome. Now, there's this idea that he sat on his balcony and played the fiddle while the city burned and I haven't found a good source a good primary source what do I mean by a primary source essentially an eyewitness or a historian close to that time frame I've never found it in writing what I had found that he wasn't even in Rome when the fire started that he came back and actually organized um, the firefighting efforts apparently Um, but What he did was he blamed the church because there was fear and lack of misunderstanding. They accused the the Christians of many things. They accused them of atheism because they didn't believe in the pagan gods. Now, you have to understand that in what the Romans did was they basically took Greek, Greek mythology, gave it Roman names, and made it their own. So when I say Greek or Roman during this time, I, I'm using that term interchangeably. Because the Romans were really Greek culturally. Make sense? All right? So they, they, they didn't understand uh, the Christian religion at all. They, they accused them of being atheists because they didn't believe in, in the mythological gods. And they accused them of all other crazy things like even cannibalism. Why would they accuse them of cannibalism? Any ideas? Communion. This is my blood. This is my body. 
And, and so they, essentially they trumped up these charges. Um, what's important about the Great Fire was that Nero's persecution, and he was very cruel, very cruel. He used people as human torches uh, in, his, in his garden as he, would, as he would do all kinds of weird things and intermingle with the crowd. And, and, uh, but he was very cruel to the church. What it did was it established what? It's a, it's a term that we use in, in our politics today. It's called precedent. He established a precedent for how the Roman Empire dealt with the church of God. And they dealt with them in a very, very, very cruel way. Now, persecution was localized for the most part. An example of that is Ignatius, who was persecuted in Smyrna. They actually captured him, stuck him in a cage, and took him to Rome so that they would execute him. And as he was traveling to Rome, there were the Christians that would come out and minister to him. They weren't arrested for being Christians. So persecution was a rather localized event, although it was extremely severe. Some of the things that I've read, I don't even know if I want to repeat them to you, that just... It, the, 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 the cruelty and the inhumane treatment and the, the injustice of it all because of the fact that people had put their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. When I think about what Paul said when he talks about such a light of a persecution, a light affliction, and, and, and we haven't suffered in this country by and large. We, sometimes we think we're persecuted. This is, this is light. This is kid stuff, if you will, compared to being made to sit on the iron chair. Can you imagine what the iron chair was? All right, stick a fire underneath it, it becomes red hot, and make you sit on the iron chair and that doesn't kill you, and they put you back in jail, and they do it to you over and over again? It's horrible. It's inhumane. It's demonic. And I have to think that there's a special place for people like that, except for by the grace of God, possibly there go I. It's a difficult thing for me to deal with. He sets the precedent and it was probably under Nero's reign that Peter and Paul uh, were put to death as well. Um, Christianity was threatened by Rome because they didn't fit into their system. Christians, again, became rather separatist. Matter of fact, what made the Jews mad about the Christians is that the Jews, the Christians did to the Jews what the Jews did to the rest of the world. That is, they became a bit too segregated. The first universal or empire-wide persecution did not take place until about 177 A.D. under Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius, interesting, he was a philosopher. Uh, and he was uh, involved in a, a philosophy that was probably nearest to Old Testament um, doctrine. And that was Stoicism. Stoicism was you do this and you don't do that. Very legalistic type of philosophy. And, and, but he, he objects to Christianity because he didn't think it was intellectual enough. And again, he was threatened by them politically because they would not worship the emperor. Uh, they would not serve in the military. They became a rather separate group. And, and so Christianity became a crime. 
Now, the interesting thing about it, I, I, I skipped over it, but see number C under, under four where it says Trajan responds to Pliny the Younger. And uh, he's, Pliny's the governor of Bithynia in one, uh, 111 AD. Pliny has these Christians. He doesn't know what to do with them. And, and, and what they would do when they would catch a Christian, they would tell him to, re, to recant his faith. Say that Caesar is Lord, grab the incense, toss it into the burner, and you were done. These Christians were, he considered, actually he wrote in the letter to uh, um, uh, Trajan, he said they're very obstinate. They're very obstinate. They would not deny their faith. And so he's like, what do I do with them? And what he was normally doing was, of course, the expedient thing, at least expedient for then. He was putting them to death. Trajan responds to Pliny, and this became precedent as well. Don't waste your time with them. But if it's brought to your attention that some people are Christians, then you must act swiftly and you must act severely. So as long as you, Christian, were in good graces with your neighbor, they wouldn't necessarily go rat you out. Therefore, you could live at peace with them. But if you lost grace, let's say, with your neighbor, and if they wanted to do you in, all they had to do was turn you into the authorities and tell them that you were a Christian, then you would be brought before the authorities, and you would have to either deny Christ or confess Christ and pay for it with your life. And that's how they handled um, the Christian problem. Now, there are there all kind of things wrong with that or not. Tertullian, we won't get into him tonight, but um, late 2nd century, early 3rd century, he was a lawyer, remember I mentioned him earlier, and he wrote all types of treaties about how unjust that was and how inhumane it was. And, and, and yet that was the Roman policy up until the time of, of uh, Constantine. And then finally in 313, skip down to, to the church response number D, uh, the Edict of Milan, it gave the church legal status and it ended persecution. Now, you would have finally thought, thank God, right? It solved some problems. Interestingly enough, it created a whole new bucket list of problems for the church, which is what we'll get into in the next. So I do want to move ahead. Real quick, I, I, let's just backtrack, and, and I want to look at the church's response to um, persecution real fast. They, they began to view persecution as normative, which still kind of strikes me. And, and they, they saw it as an opportunity to present and to demonstrate the purity and the fidelity of their faith. And, and uh, Clement of Rome um, writes that uh, examples of that were Peter and Paul who contended unto death. They were faithful unto death. They, they, they contended. Interesting, when you think about contend, you think, what do you think of when you hear the word he's contend, contended or he's contending? Fighting. Fighting. So think about that. What did Paul say in the, second, um, in the second letter to Timothy when he was, what's that? Contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. And what did he say about himself? He did tell him to contend for the faith. 
He said, I fought the good fight. You know, um, I don't know how to say this, but I'll just throw it out here. Um, I'm not looking forward to dying. Um, I'm not necessarily looking forward to dying for my faith, but I am looking forward to apprehending all that God has for me. And if, if that is part of God's will, then, then I'm looking forward to embracing that which God has ordained for me. And I, I think that's how these guys saw this. Um, Ignatius, I mentioned Ignatius briefly uh, in our last hour. He took this idea a step further. And incidentally, do you see the footnotes that I put in there for you? If That's just there for your reference. One, I, I don't want you to think I'm making any of this up. And, and second of all, if you want to do further research, there's your references if you want to check up on this and read up on this and, and learn more about this. So Ignatius, um, he takes this idea a step further, and, and he refers to himself being finally, and he's in a cart being hauled off to be executed, being treated inhumanely, unjustly. And he says, I'm now finally becoming a true disciple. And, and uh, that his martyrdom was the expression of a true believer, and he used this phrase, he's earned the right to be called a Christian. Now, what do you think about that? This is a guy who's being taken away to die. And he says, I, I'm now being a true disciple. I'm now earning the right, if you will, to be called a Christian. Anybody, does anybody have any thoughts on that? Yeah, exactly. Anybody else? Taking up his cross and following. That's where I was going, Luke chapter 9. Uh, literally taking up his cross. Cross is, what, what, what's the bit about the cross? What's the significance of the cross? I guess that's a better way to ask. It is a form of execution, pure and simple. At least that's what it was back then. And, and so he, he said, I, I, I'm finally calling myself, having the right to be called a true Christian. Now, his ideas may have been extremely within his personal context. What do I mean by that? My calling is not the same as your calling. All right? Now, I believe that any of us are called, and any of us could be called to die for our faith. I, that's, so don't think I'm minimizing this either. But even as pastors, his calling is different than mine. My calling is out there in sisters his calling is here and, and and so but what they did was they personified this to such a way that martyrdom became the benchmark of christian living in the church in other words if you weren't martyred then maybe you weren't a christian after all in other words they, they took it to the extreme do you see what i'm saying here now is, is that a biblical construct no it's not and, and uh, who are you? Romans, is it Romans 14? Who are you to judge another man's servant? And, and it goes on to say that before his master, he will either stand or he will fall. For Christ is able to make him to do what? To stand. And so my particular calling, my particular road of discipleship, my particular, I like what Roy said, you take up your cross daily, deny yourself, follow Jesus, Luke chapter 9, my particular calling may look a little differently 
than yours. And that's how God personally ministers to us. And yet there are some generalities that really speak to all of our lives, don't they? And one of them is that we all come to, Christ, we all come to God how? By grace, through faith, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Um, Tertullian uh, viewed uh, um, persecution as a means to manifest purity in the life of a believer. You see, they, they got off here. And that's not obvious in the notes, but they, they, they began to believe in this idea of a baptism by fire. Now, unfortunately, the church, they, some of them, not all, but some of them, they got off in this idea that uh, very early, actually, that baptism removed initial, uh, uh, original sin. That's very Roman Catholic, by the way. And, and they got off on this idea that if a person was to be baptized, uh, that removed all their original sin. That's part of the reason why many believe Constantine wasn't baptized until he was baptized on his deathbed. However, if you were baptized as a child, and infant baptism actually creeped in rather early, which I don't believe is a proper practice. But if baptism removes original sin and you were baptized when you were quite young, chances are that since then you have done what? You've sinned. So what do you do with that? So they came up with this idea, and it's incorrect, but again, that's part of the thing about teaching church history is that I don't have to defend everything. I'm just trying to give you some of the idea of what went on then. They came up with this idea that there was a second baptism called the baptism of fire. And so then if you were persecuted, and if you died for your faith, follow this, if you died for your faith, you automatically went to heaven. Now, what does that sound like? That's one. What other religion does that sound like? Islam. Sounds like Islam. That's exactly where it comes from. Do you know um, off your head what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about like, being a martyr? People could actually be a martyr and not even be saved. Do you, do you remember anything like the cost of discipleship or anything like that? I haven't read a whole lot of, of Bonhoeffer. I read The Cost of Discipleship. I went to the Family Christian Bookstore about a month ago, and that Bonhoeffer book that's that thick, and it's sitting on my desk. I've got a holding pattern, right? And, and, uh, um, and again, he was Lutheran, and it was actually the day that he died, he administered the sacrament, if you will. He administered the Lord's Supper to, uh, to his prisoners that he was in there with. Uh, but I... I I don't really remember how what he touched on on that. So that that. Okay. From Bonhoeffer is an interesting person because um, he's not quite so much in the same box of Christianity as let's say we are. But but from what I've read of him, he sure does indicate to me that he was a Christian, and and that he was. Um, willing to demonstrate and to live out his Christianity uh, in, in making sure um, that, the th that justice was carried out. And, and some people would call him a traitor, but I would think the fact is that he was, he, was, he was a very just man looking to do away with the tyrant. 
And if you, if you don't know, Bonhoeffer was among those that was in the plot to kill Hitler. I wish he had succeeded. And unfortunately, Bonhoeffer was put to death just days before they, I believe that the, the Allied forces came in and, and rescued the rest of that prison. So, um, but God knows what he's doing. Um, thank God for that, amen? Because my goodness, uh, so many times it's like, does he? And yet he does. He's faithful, isn't he? And, and so the idea of persecution, and I've referred to it a couple times, it's John 15, 20, they persecuted me, they persecute you. The idea of persecution was to be like the master. And, and um, really, if you think about it, it's an incredible calling. Re- Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, uh, let's, let's turn there real fast. I got a head start on you. It's the letter to the church of Smyrna, I referred to it a little bit earlier. And it says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days, and be faithful unto death, and I will, what? I will give you the crown of life. Wow, is that not incredible hope? Just incredible hope that as we are faithful, excuse me, as we are faithful unto death, he will give us the crown of life. What are we going to do with that? Revelate, throw it at his feet. The ultimate, I believe, ultimate's the bad word, but I'm going to use it anyway, cut me some slack. Really the ultimate example of worship. But then again, we're going to go into this internal state that just the idea of it blows my mind. And, and what are we going to do and how are we going to interact with each other? How are we going to interact with God? And, and the God who saved me, thank God he will keep me because if not, I would blow it. I just think I would. But I will have a totally new nature then. And so his grace covers us, doesn't he? Fourthly, or uh, Roman numeral, all of a sudden we're at seven. We're moving along. (laughs) We've talked about political problems. So within the time frame we have left, let's talk about cultural and theological problems. Cultural problems. Colossians 2.8, let's look at it. guess I ought to find it here. If you're there, if you want to read it, go ahead. Colossians 2.8. If not, I'm already there. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay, thanks. Beware lest any of you cheat, uh, anyone cheat you through philosophy. I've read Plato. read um, Aristotle. Am I being cheated? Some people would tell me yes. What are you doing? You're wasting your time reading this stuff. What I have here copied from you, and you see the footnote is from Ken Woost. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Ken Woost and his uh, word studies of the Great New Testament. Fabulous, fabulous piece of work. He talks about this word philosophy. I'll just read it to you. The definite article appears before philosophy. It is his philosophy. And is, uh, is chi, which is the word and, uh, should, be, uh, should here be rendered even, uh, making the words vain deceit explanatory of philosophy. Did you copy that? If not, you can look at this again. Like I said, I gave it to you word for word. 
Uh, Paul's warning, this is the point, is not against all philosophy, only against that which is vain deceit as that of the Colossian heretics. Vain here means empty, devoid of truth, futile, fruitless, without effect. In other words, a philosophy that is empty, devoid of truth, futile, fruitless, and without effect. Are some philosophies that way? Yes, they are. Do you know some Christians who they're... Now, I'm not picking on other views, so don't, don't jump on that wagon here. Do you know some Christians that, are th- that their theology would be described that way? I know some. I knew of some. Hopefully, they've outgrown it. <sighs> Nothing worse than a first-year Bible college student, to be honest with you. You know why? Because it's all up here, but it hasn't gotten into their heart yet. And, and so they become like a parrot, and they're able to parrot so much. Now, I don't understand everything, and I never will understand everything. And I look at the Bible, and I've shared this with my church many times, and, and the more I read the Bible, the less I'm confident on certain areas, all right? And, and I do read it a lot. Um, and so sometimes I just have to go with my gut, if you will, and I realize that I don't necessarily understand it in my head too well. I don't necessarily understand it in my heart very well, but I'm going to trust that this is what it's saying. What am I getting at? I, you know, what I'm saying is I read commentaries, all right? I, and, and I hope you all, when you study God's word, I hope you read commentaries. You know you, you hear at least one commentary every week, right? It's, the, it's Rory Rogers, Right? Or you're listening to one now. Now, I know some people, and I have a friend of mine who describes them this way. He calls them Jesus and me under the apple tree. And uh, I like the rhyme anyway. Um, And they don't read commentaries because they feel that the Holy Spirit instructs them in all things. Now, does the Holy Spirit instruct us in all things? Does the Bible say that the Holy Spirit instructs? Yes, thank you. All right. Through what medium? Through what means? Does it all just, the spirit, yes, but does it all just, is it all downloaded? Or does he use other brothers, other sisters to speak to us? Really, it is that that we, even with these early fathers, we stand on the shoulders of those who went before us. You can, and I'm letting you. I'm, I'm remaining quiet because you haven't finished your thought yet. Okay. I'm waiting on you. Uh, 2 9. Absolutely. But how does the Spirit work? Yes, sometimes he speaks directly to, us, to our heart, but because Ephesians chapter 4, he has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. In other words, he has designed the church in such a way to where that we minister one to another. And what I've found about the, 
and I hope it's not coming off condescending. I do like the rhyme. The Jesus and me under the apple tree type of mentality is, and I'm only speaking from my experience, all right? That's pretty narrow. Somewhere, somehow, some way, they get off drastically in certain areas of scripture. I had a friend of mine, and he's, he's one of those kind of guys. He, he's telling me that, that um, and maybe you believe this. If not, I've, I've totally thrown my point. But anyway, he's telling me that, that Jonah uh, died and went to hell and then was resurrected out of hell back into the belly of the well, and, excuse me, great fish, and then was That's not what the Bible says. But you see what happens when we don't read commentaries, cross-checking. You're in the army. You know, you know what it means to, to, uh, to get a, a, a cross-check and to, what, what's the word I'm looking for? For uh, when you triangulate on, on a position. It's cross-checking, triangulating. I'm getting different opinions. Most, uh, probably most of the stuff I read during the week when I'm preparing for my sermon, I, it never comes out of my mouth. I'm just cross-checking. All right, I've only got 45 minutes. Right? So it's not what I say, it's what i got to leave on the cutting room floor, so to speak. So yes, I would agree with you completely. It is the Spirit, it's always the Spirit, always has been the Spirit, always will be the Spirit, but he uses many, many different means. And if I won't use the King James, but you know where I'm going. He even uses an unclean animal to speak to his wayward prophets, a donkey. And he's been speaking through unclean animals ever since. Go ahead. Would you say the primary way that the Holy Spirit speaks is through our brothers in Christ? I don't know the answer to that. I want to say yes, but I don't even know if I'm qualified to answer that. But um, quick example, then we'll keep going. Um, I knew God called me in the ministry when I was 17. I didn't want to go in the ministry. I wanted to come home and drink beer and smoke weed. That's what, after work, that's what I wanted to do. So God said, all right, then do that. So after coming out of rehab, a couple of years later, God said, I remember that calling. I'm like, oh, no, we're still going to go here? And I finally said, all right, God, if this is what you want me to do, I'll do this. So he let me go for about eight and a half, nine years of probably the most difficult and the most valuable time in my life where I was just waiting, 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 waiting for God to open a door. And there were so many times I thought God opened a door. And if I had stepped through every door that I thought God was opening, I'd still be in the straight jacket today. In other words, we can't always trust our own impulses. Finally, I had a guy sit down and tell me, if, and I so of the Lord, if you want to be a pastor in the ministry, get out of Sacramento. Okay, I can do that. And all of a sudden, I said, all right, I will do that, and the doors just started opening. Ended up in Tahoe, ended up here, and, you know, anyway. So I, don't, I can't answer that because I, I don't think, again, I don't think I'm qualified. And uh, that would presuppose to me tell you how to have your relationship with God. That's what it would do. Follow me? Okay. Philosophy. Um, so, you saw how I would answer Colossians 2.8. Um, but there is a connection between the early church uh, uh, religion and philosophy. We, we, uh, 1 Corinthians. You already stole part of my show, but that's okay. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. 
but at least I'm right there so I can read it. So thanks. Uh, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are, us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Right? That's the context. Uh, I won't read all of them for the sake of time. Um, but it says, we preach Christ, verse 23. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's back up to 20. Well, there's too much here to skip over. Verse 21. Since the wisdom of God, that word wisdom is the Greek word Sophia. This word philosophy in, second, in, uh, in Colossians chapter 2 is the word philosophia. Philo, it means brotherly love. Sophia means what? Wisdom. Philosophy, love of wisdom, all right? So what this is talking about is wisdom. It's just a stone's throw away from philosophy. Do you, do you see where I'm making the connection? Anybody don't see where I'm making the connection? All right, let's continue then. For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, and it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who do what? Believe. Notice this. The Jews, they want a sign. I've been teaching through Matthew what, just recently. They're asking, show us another sign. Show us another sign. They're always looking for a sign. What were the Greeks looking for? Wisdom. Philosophy. Because that's what philosophy takes you toward. It is a love of wisdom. Now, it's man's reasoning. I'm not, getting, I'm not mixing man and, and God here. It's man's wisdom. Follow me? But it's the best man can do without the Holy Spirit. Make sense? All right. We're back on the same page, aren't we? All righty. It's the best that God can do. I'm mean, sorry. Man can do without the Holy Spirit. The Greeks wanted wisdom. And, and, and so it says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. Why? God could not come and hang on a tree. It, it says so in the book of Deuteronomy. To the Greeks, it's foolish. Why? Because their focus was not on the material, but it was on the spiritual. It was all about the spiritual in Greek philosophy. Plato set the the, the foundation for this. I don't have time to unpack it. Um, and to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, Christ the power, Jews, power, show me a sign. You want to see a sign? Power of God, right? Wisdom of God. What was the longing of the Greeks? Wisdom, philosophy, love of wisdom. He's filling both squares here. Do you see that? He's filling the square of the, of the Jew wanting the sign and the Greek loving wisdom and saying Christ is the all in all. That's what he's saying. That, my friends, is the message that we need to give to the world. Some want a sign, power. Some want some type of an idea or a, 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 a dogma, wisdom. Christ is in all of that. Um, because the foolishness of God is Sophia, wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger, power, than men. So he's, he, he's filling the squares, isn't he? 
But it, it really, if you really consider what he's saying here, he's leaving no room for argument that he is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by him. And the longing that the philosophers had way back, hundreds of years before the time of Christ, was a longing for Jesus. I have a book called Plato's Republic. It's, I, I almost brought it. It's, it's a pretty thick book. And, and in that book, I have so many places where I have scripture written. Because God was preparing, I believe, the Greek world for the message of the gospel. Not that they get saved by reading Plato. Don't misunderstand me. How do people get saved? One name, written among, among heaven, given among men, whereby men, what? Must be saved. The book of Acts. Is Acts 4? I think it's Acts 4. Thank you. It's about Jesus. It's about his witness. But he engaged culture. And I hope that stirs us a bit. He engaged culture. There was a link between a systematic intellectual activity and religious devotion. Now, this didn't exist in Judaism. How, how is that so? The Judaism was really about the law. What you do, what you don't do. What you eat. Is all that kosher about, you know, yeah, well, it's okay, we're, we're under grace. Um, but it was all about what you did. God set up a construction of how they were to live, and that was how they manifested their relationship with God. But were they saved by the law or were they saved by grace? Yeah, exactly. They were saved by grace. Always have been, always will be. There's not, in that respect, two dispensations. At least I don't believe it's so, and what I like to tell my church at times is, your mileage may vary, okay? But philosophy, excuse me, the theology of the New Testament required an intellectual activity. It was more than just what you do or what you don't do. Now you have this, this, this idea of, of, of um, Christ coming, God coming in the flesh, dying on a cross, and that requires an intellectual explanation, doesn't it? What did First uh, Peter one? I'm sorry, First Peter three fifteen. Since I'm there, I'm going to go ahead and read it. But uh, but sanctify, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does that mean? What does the word sanctify mean? Set him apart. How so? Anybody? How, how do you sanctify? How do you set apart Christ? You, you set him aside as holy. Yes, he is holy and we are not. But isn't that a form of worship? Isn't, think of the, the gesture of setting something aside. Isn't that a form of worship? And, 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 I, and I, I set you aside as holy, uh, which, uh, not something that's common. So I sanctify the Lord God in, in, our, in our hearts, excuse me, in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with what? Arrogance and loud, voiceless talking. No, with, an, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, and when they defame you as evildoers, like the Romans did to the early church, those who revile you, Revile your good conduct in Christ might be ashamed. But always be ready to give an answer for the hope 
that lies within you. Do you have that answer? Do you have that answer? Do you, have you constructed your apologia, Greek word for apology or argument, or your defense of the gospel? And guys, that, that is so important that we have that on the fingertips of our heart, if you will. That, that uh, I'll never forget, it was in Ray's, in Sisters, the old Ray's. And there was this crazy, this crazy lady that worked there, and she was a clerk, um, a checker. And, and she goes, well, hey, what's the word? Sounds like an uh, invitation to me. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except for by me. That's the word. And that's what I put out there to her. And I don't even, sometimes I'll quote bits and pieces of the scriptures. I won't tell them a scripture. I don't want to spoil it for them. Because the word of God is what? It is sharper. It is what? Active. Active, sharper than what? Any two edged. I always want to say edged because I go back to the King James. Any two-edged sword, and as the discerner, as Hebrews 4.12, right, is a discerner between the thoughts, between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of what? The heart. Thy word have I hid in thy heart that I might not sin against thee. Guys, have these things in your heart. I don't, I don't memorize scripture. You know what I do? I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I read it. And all of a sudden, I realize that I'm starting to memorize it because I, I, I guess I have something adverse to memorization. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. Now, some in the church, Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, I really like Justin Martyr, although he sounded more like a philosopher than he did a Christian at times. Even more so, Clement sounded more like a philosopher than he did a um, a Christian at times, they used a lot of philosophical terms and concepts to understand and describe God. Get this, they used a lot of philosophical terms and concepts to understand and to be able to explain and describe God. What's wrong with that or what's right with that? Anybody? Or is there anything wrong with this? Is it just neutral? That would be a problem. And, and that, that can go too far. I think Clement of Alexandria did take it too far. But is it reasoning or terminology? And, and that's the question we have to ask ourselves, right? Are we using man's reasoning? Which reason only took Plato so far, right? Didn't get him saved. What gets him saved, Paul? The Holy Spirit, faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit revealing these things, right? Revelation by the Spirit, right? So anybody else, is it right or wrong? Reasoning, yes, that would be wrong.
I hope that was picked up because that was very well said. Um, you have to speak their language, don't you? I have a two-year-old grandson who is, well, two and a half. <laughs> Private joke, they can explain later. Um, and I have to speak his language. It's interesting, when I was visiting my, my four-year-old, well, my grandsons, my son and his four grandkids and my daughter-in-law, they live in Boise, don't ask me why, but um, uh, we, we visited them in the fall and I was taking a class on Plato. I read Plato's Republic to my granddaughter who's four years old. Now, she didn't understand a word that I read, but she just wanted grandpa to be with her for a little bit, right? But we have to speak people's language, don't we? We have to convey these things that people either don't feel threatened because they feel stupid, right? Because we can talk over people's heads. They don't feel threatened because they, they feel stupid, or they don't feel threatened because they think you are so much. And again, this can be Satan whispering into their ears. They think you're so, you think you're so much better than they are. I love what my former pastor used to say. We're just one beggar telling what another, another beggar where the bread is. That's all we're doing. So, um, wow, we're almost about done. Let's run through theological challenges, or at least a few. How's that? Is that okay? Are we all okay? All right, because I can stop. All right. Theological challenges. Now, again, the, the canon wasn't fully authorized until about 397 or even 419, depending on who you want to read uh, in Scripture. Um, Irenaeus, second century, he, he defends against heretical teaching and uh, by preserving the teaching of the apostles. You see, Irenaeus really identified what true apostolic secession is. What do I mean by apostolic secession? Do I mean Peter was the pope and then I don't remember the rest of the guy's names. Were they popes? No. Exactly. Apostolic succession in its original definition was about the teaching of the apostles, not about the Bishop of Rome. Now, the Bishop of Rome, excuse me, we, and we won't have time to get into this tonight, but the Bishop of Rome got priority rather early because it is believed that Peter began the Church of Rome. And that P Peter and Paul were both there. And so that church got preeminence. Um, and I think it's a shame, to be honest with you. Um, you have to wonder, you mentioned John, you have to wonder why Ephesus didn't get that distinction. But a lot of it was political, all right? And again, it happened after Constantine merged the church and the government. Now, he did a lot of really wonderful things, but it, it created a lot of problems as well. Uh, whether or not he was a Christian, it's hard to say. Again, he was baptized on his deathbed. Uh, but you had this influence of Gnosticism, 
We see that, and we won't have to take the time. You can go look at 1 John. 1 John is all about a defense against Gnosticism. Gnosticism, Bertrand Russell, I have a quote from him. By the way, Bertrand Russell was not a Christian, but I thought that this was an interesting observation. He was a philosopher. And he says, Gnosticism afforded a halfway house between philosophical paganism and Christianity, for while it honored Christ, it thought ill of the Jews. I thought that was an interesting quote. Because the, 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 the battle between the church and the Jews had already started to get some pretty good steam. And that was his observation. But he saw Gnosticism as, as the halfway house, as it will. It wasn't a fixed theology. Matter of fact, it didn't originate. A lot of people think Gnosticism originated within the church. It, it didn't. It was, it was actually uh, the taking of some of Plato's writings and distorting them. Now, I'm not necessarily defending Plato, but the Gnostics didn't necessarily represent him well. And, and what they believed that all matter was evil, and that what we really needed to do was we needed to escape the material world and to be able to transcend into the spiritual world. What's right with that? What's wrong with that? Anybody? Is all matter evil? Thank you. And so that shuts that argument down, doesn't it? Now, they believe, and you probably have heard these stories, they believe that Jesus, when he walked on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he didn't even leave footprints. That's silly. He didn't leave footprints, right? That's silliness. But they, they believe that, that there was a God who created matter, but there was another God who was superior to the creator God, who became the redeemer God. So there were two gods in the mix. Follow me? Okay, I saw that look, and then I saw the light bulb. Okay. And so they wanted to worship the Redeemer God. Now, what's wrong with that? Why are they the same? That would be one reason. That's out of the book of Psalms. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. By the way, that's God, Elohim, three or more. Did what? Created the heaven and the earth. And, and it's, it's not hard to establish the paper trail between the God of Genesis 1-1 and the Jesus Christ, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, and the last in Revelation 22. You're aware of that, right? And, and so, again, we can easily combat some of these ideas because, because the Gnostics would argue, why would a God want to come and soil himself in material, in the material world, in materialism? Why would a God want to come and soil himself? With love. God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans 5? And so the, the Gnostic idea puts God far away. The true God of the Bible brings him in close. Let's skip over the rest of the stuff. Let's talk quickly about Donatism and then we'll wrap it, okay? Donatism, Roman numeral 10. It was a political struggle that began, and it had to do with Constantine, who was an incredible administrator, 
wanting to organize everything in, under his jurisdiction, including the church. And, and the, the argument came about, about who was in authority and who had authority and who could be in leadership. 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1 gives us a very clear distinction of who was qualified to lead the house of God. And, and uh, it began in North Africa. Now, now, please don't think I'm prejudiced, and, and this is what was going on. In North Africa at the time, they were Europeans. They were from Rome, mainly. They were, they were uh, transplants. They were settlers. Just like the Native Americans here uh, are, are, are the, uh, the First Nations people, um, they're not the majority here. In this country, so in North Africa, the majority of people were, were those who had settled from Italy and, and Spain and other places. So it was, it was really an extension of Europe, is what it was. Um, and what happened is that initially there was this problem with, after the persecution was over, there were those who had lapsed in their faith. In other words, they denied the faith. And after the persecution was over, after the Edict of Milan was signed in 312, they wanted back in the church. Now, who wouldn't? Okay, I denied the Lord, but hey, you know, things are cool now, so I want to come back. And the policy was that they repented publicly, and then they were allowed back in. Which I think there's some biblical precedent for that. But this is a difficult issue. Do we let anybody in? Do we let anybody back in? And what are the consequences of our forgiveness of people when they have denied the faith? Or let's say they have stolen money from the church. I'm going to step, I'm going to make a mess here for you. Or they have, there are known sex offenders. But they've repented and they want back in. Do we forgive them? We do. Even if they have committed your pet peeve sin, we forgive them. Do we restore them? He said, yes. You said, yes. You said, of course. What does restoration mean? To go back to the beginning to affirm your love? Do you make him the church treasurer again? Do you let him serve in children's ministry? No, I don't think you do. I think there are things that disqualify us from certain areas of the ministry. And, and I can't necessarily prove this biblically, so this is some Mikeism. So I'm, I'm giving you my opinion. All right, take it or leave it. I think there are certain things that disqualify you for life, to be honest with you. I think I'll leave it at that instead of throwing some more out because I've got, I, I've got a boatload here, but I'll let it go. But I think these are the things we need to think about when we're restoring people. Go ahead. Uh, a 
Yes. Yeah, I'm talking about believers. Uh, now, but you ask a very important question. Because someone who did, let's say, well, uh, um, sexual child abuse before they were Christian. Now, the, the, the Bible tells us once we're saved, we are what? We are a new creature, right? All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. I believe that with all my heart. I'm not going to risk my kids in my church uh, on that. And if you want to serve in church min- uh, uh, children's ministry and that's in your record, particularly in today's uh, day and age, I'm not going to say never, 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 but you're going to have to prove it, prove it, prove it, prove it, prove it. And I, well, I won't go there. But anyway, if, and if you let me down, I, I'm tempted to castrate you myself, to be honest with you. I mean, that's, that's where I was going. But I, I would say wisdom in that respect, says never. Um, I don't want it said of me it is better to have a millstone hung around my neck and be cast into the sea than let one of these little ones perish. And, and uh, to me, that, that is the future of the church. That is, uh, my goodness, what our kids are going to face. Um, they need every advantage. And, yeah, I would say, you know what? You can hand out bulletins, and God bless you. You know, there are other places to serve. And, and uh, if you really love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, you will be submitted to what has been placed on the heart of the pastor. No, he didn't pay me to say this, but you will be submitted to what God has placed on his heart and be willing and desiring to serve accordingly. Otherwise, I'm not so sure you love the Lord as much as you say you do. So, um, but that's something we need to think about. I'll skip some more of this and I'll finish just one more verse. Because Donatism, F, was not a division over doctrine. It was a division over practice. It was a division over either purity or how people define purity in the church. Now set the child molester thing away because that's not what I'm talking about here. But how did we define purity in the church? And, and, and what makes our church pure? And, and there are all kinds of ministries that, boy, they're, 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 they're wanting to establish um, the standard. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in the church. Again, he didn't pay me for this either. But you know I feel this way. That God ordained the church to be the torchbearer of these things. And God ordained the pastor to lead the church to be the torchbearer of these things. And God will speak to the pastor to establish the standard of what purity is in the church. And I have people who disagree with me. uh, One more story, all right? We had this family, well, it was the kids that came. Lost as a rock. Um horribly dysfunctional family horribly dysfunctional and of course obviously most of the time alcohol is involved and there was a family that invited in the church and they started coming and there was the teenage girl who did not dress appropriately that's I think the good way to say it 
And there was one of the women that was concerned about her dress. And of course, they don't talk to me about it. They talk to my wife, which incensed me, but it's the way it goes, and I'm sure you understand that. But, and she, well, we're a small church. We should have a dress code. How about we pray that this young lady gets saved and that the Spirit of God begins to do a work in her heart and she begins to realize that maybe some of her attire is inappropriate. Why don't we do that instead, instead of instigating a dress code? You see, it's never a question of purity, but it's a question of what the focus of purity is upon. The focus of purity for the church always has to be the person of Jesus Christ and him only. I love that silly t-shirt. You catch him, he'll clean him. I believe it. How important are our disagreements on the non-essential elements of the faith? Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, and then I'm going to close. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There are things in the body of Christ that I don't care for. There are times I believe that we have to speak. I think many times we have to really hold that impulse to want to speak out on certain things with incredible sense of humility and sobriety and to be able to take it before the Lord before we do speak out. What this is really saying, guys, I believe, is that we have to give God room to work. And the problem with the Donatists was that they became so divisive over things that really didn't matter in eternity. And they became a problem for so long that you can look at it in your notes. Eventually, the North African church disappeared from the map. The Arabs came in under Islam and took the whole area. If you go there today, there's hardly any churches, right? It was a very influential church. It was a church that produced Tertullian. It was 100 years later, it was a church that produced Augustine. But they never stopped infighting over incidental, non-essential matters. And I believe it killed them. It sounds a lot like the church in America today, doesn't it? And incredibly sad, but the thing is, to with all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Man, there are so many people I wish they'd get it together. I really do. I really wish they'd get their act together. I wish they'd call me for a consult, but they haven't. So I can get angry or in lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bear with one another in love. I had people do that to me. I used to be on the worship team at a church down south, and, and uh, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't have too big of an issue with using tobacco products, although I think it's unwise. Some people think it's, you know, you're going to grow horns if you do so. I used to be on the worship team, and I had a can of skull in my right pocket. I figure if you're going to do it, you're going to, you don't do anything on, you know, under the cover of darkness. It might have offended people, or maybe they never knew what that little round circle was in my, po- in my front pocket. I don't know. But no one ever bothered me about it. You know who finally spoke to me about it? 
the Holy Spirit spoke to me about it. He says, if you're going to do this thing up here doing worship, you need to stop chewing tobacco. Okay, I can do it. Thank you, Lord. Give me the grace. Nicotine is a wonderful drug, man. It kept me in the game. keeps me alert. It's been 20-some-odd years. Lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the union of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Come on up, Ryan, and close this out. God bless you guys, and thank you for allowing me to come.